Again, I'll open with that uh, verse we've been opening with each time in our lessons on eternal life, what so many call eternal security. Uh, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, As I've pointed out, the Bible uses that phrase eternal life. It also uses eternal salvation. It also uses everlasting righteousness. It also uses eternal uh, redemption. And, uh, you know, it's a tragedy when people try to alter the meaning of God's word. I, I was thinking yesterday as I prepared this that if you remove the eternal aspect of those phrases, which is what happens if you say you can lose your salvation, wasn't eternal. You can lose your righteousness, wasn't eternal. Uh, Redemption no longer is effective, wasn't eternal, and likewise with eternal life. What people do when they do something like that is they are actually trying to alter the very word of God. What people do is challenge the reliability of the Bible. If the words don't mean what they say, if we can sort of mold them and shape them so that eternal life is an eternal, eternal salvation is an eternal, then we're saying the word of God is not really reliable. And it's a substituting of human ideas. You know, so many people that I have talked to that do not believe that eternal life is eternal is just the way they were raised. Now, I was raised believing that eternal life is eternal, and at a certain point I realized I believed it because that's the way I was raised and that's what I was taught, and I could not support it by the scripture. And then I dug in and found out what the Bible said. And so I believe what I believe based on the Bible. And they they will trot out so many verses, and we started looking at some of the passages that are used to oppose the living reality of eternal life. And I've seen Bible verses pasted onto human ideas that just run the spectrum. Uh, UFOs. Uh, I, I actually, a fellow I worked with years ago, he was a member of the Seventh day Adventist, and he had a book that showed by the Bible old wheel, you know, that there are UFOs, really. They had Bible verses pasted all over that crazy idea. Uh, There was a psychology class that was available for Christians quite a number of years ago, caused kind of a stir. They had Bible verses pasted all over that class. But psychology is a human philosophy. Go to the library look up psychology books. They're not in the science section, they're in the philosophy section, which is where they belong. It's just a human idea. So just because somebody trots out a lot of Bible verses and pastes it onto their preconceived idea doesn't mean that their idea is correct just because they have a string of Bible verses. I believe, first of all, we need to let the Lord guide us. The Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. But also, as as I go through some of these passages, I'm sort of breaking them down in a way and and analyzing them. There has to be, if you're going to get into serious Bible study, you have to approach it analytically. How do I analyze this passage? Well, what do the words mean? Very important. 
what is the context of the discussion? Is he talking, I mean, there are some passages that people have taken that have to do solely with Israel. They've applied them to us today as a part of the church, we who are Gentiles. They're out of context. Uh, what other, pa- you have to take the Bible as a whole, what other passages contribute to my thinking about this issue? So there has to be a kind of an analytical approach. Uh, just by way of review, we left off last week and we're considering Colossians 1:21 through 23. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. And here's the one they cling to. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Uh, Those who speak against believers having uh, a true and a present possession of eternal life emphasize the if in that passage. If. And then they jump on the things that can go wrong with that if. And then they insist that that means you can lose your salvation. I personally focus on verses 21 and 22. Because it talks about uh, being presented. What does that presentation mean according to the Bible? What might be lost if we don't continue in God's purpose? And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. And here's what can be lost. To present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. doesn't matter what other people think. It's what God sees and knows. We saw a parallel in Ephesians 5.26 where similar phrasing is used to express God's purpose, his desire, his planned intention for those who are reconciled to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there it speaks about a presentation by Christ to himself. A presentation of a body of people who will have allowed him to cleanse their walk through the word of God. And uh, there it says that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but if it should be holy and without blemish. Now, in that passage, you can read it how you will. There is not even the slightest hint that someone could lose salvation, that it's possible that eternal life could be lost. There's not the slightest hint that even one of God's people could fall into condemnation by their actions. In Ephesians 5, as we saw, Paul was discussing human marriage. But... In verse 32, he made it clear that his entire conversation about marriage is actually a spiritual allegory. This is a great mystery. Now, in the Bible, when it uses that term mystery, it's not something unknown or unknowable. It's talking about something unknowable except by the revelation provided by the scriptures and by the Holy Spirit. There are things that were hidden from the foundation of the world, mysteries, but God has revealed them to us. And so there's a mystery 
concerning Christ and the church. It's something that you don't just automatically see. You don't automatically pick up on. And when Paul talked about that presentation to himself, he was talking about something going on between the head of the church and the church itself. Uh, and by the way, I'm, I'm just going to drop this in. In studying the Bible, if you haven't already figured this out, you will see that every doctrine is interconnected with other Bible teachings. It's very nearly impossible to study a single Bible teaching in isolation because here we are talking about eternal life, but we're going to see that there's a doctrine regarding the bride that feeds right into this issue if we're going to understand it clearly. Uh, we're going to see later that chastening feeds into it. Eventually we're going to look at the two natures, the two creations that the believer has to recognize and deal with. And so, um, yeah, there's going to be other teachings besides just this eternal life matter. And so let's continue looking at some of those scriptures that have been misapplied. Scriptures at this point having to do with rewards. Just going on with this thought, this Bible teaching about Christ and the church and a marriage relationship. Again, Paul talked about marriage in great detail in Ephesians 5. And then he says, what I'm really talking about has to do not just with your marriage. Great advice, important counsel, instruction not to be ignored in a human marriage. But nevertheless, the real issue, the real important thing is Christ and the church and what goes on there. And uh, so there's going to be a presentation by Christ to himself. Did you ever get yourself, did you ever buy yourself a birthday present? I have. <laughs> and I gave it to myself. Well going to happen with Christ one of these days. He's going to present a body of people to himself, a people whose walk through this world has been cleansed by the word of God. In Revelation 19, 7 and 8, we read, <clears throat> let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb, who is the Lamb? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the earth. The marriage of the Lamb, a wedding taking place that has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't confuse the imagery with something literal. It's a spiritual relationship that he compares to marriage. I mean, I have used this illustration often. Uh, the Gordoneers have some sheep, and, and they have figured out that lambs are just silly creatures. They bounce all over the field. They, they're idiots. They don't have a brain in their head, scarcely. And they're, they're cute beyond recognition and so forth totally dependent, totally helpless. How many of you think that that's how we're supposed to look at the Lord Jesus Christ? No. That tells us he was going to be a sacrifice. And so when we see this issue of the marriage, I have heard people in our circles just make that, well, I won't even take that any further. They, make, they try to make it something literal, something romantic, something, something. It's a picture of a relationship, the closest human relationship that there can be. Sadly, it's not always as close as it could be, but the closest possible human relationship takes place within a marriage. 
And so it's talking about a relationship with Christ with no barriers, two equals coming together, one recognizing the headship of the other, but nevertheless, uh, he has raised us up to sit together with him in heavenly places. We'll never be his equal in the fact of his deity, but he has made us his companions, if we'll receive that. And uh, there's going to be a body of people that are presented to Christ by himself as a bride. The marriage of the Lamb has come. Notice that his wife has made herself ready. There is a preparation for this place. I would ask you, you don't have to answer, of course, but do you know anybody, and I hope it's not yourself, but you know they're saved, but you also know there is not a lot of preparation taking place. Their life is not what it should be, and they know it, but they're not letting the Word of God really cleanse their life, cleanse their walk through the world. It's not just happening uh, that way. Uh, they're not really continuing in the hope of the gospel that Paul preached. I mean, Paul's gospel is an important thing for this age, and that's a part of the if that's set forth. Uh, they're in Colossians. Uh, so there's a preparation. There is a, a, a coming to a place of fitness for the place. I think any young person here, now leave off the pretty, because the pretty goes away. Leave off the handsome. The handsome goes away. Handsome and pretty is really nice, right? But we get old, right? So maybe, maybe when I was 15-year-old, years old, a 15-year-old girl might have thought I was cute. It, it, it wouldn't happen that way, and it's a very good thing that it wouldn't. I'm old. Talk about spots and wrinkles. I got spots on my hands and wrinkles on my face. Well, we change. But you can think of some practical character issues that you would not accept in a spouse if that person showed obvious signs of being unfaithful if there were some serious substance, substance abuse issues taking place, if there was violence going on, if there was a, a history of criminal behavior. Boy, wouldn't you think twice? There needs to be a fitness for a place. Employers, they have job interviews. Are you fit? Are you qualified? Do you have what I need going in? And so there will be a marriage, there will be a uniting and a special relationship of a body of people prepared for that place, a relationship with Christ. And we call it the bride. The Bible calls it the bride, the Lamb's wife. Now, much of the church, if you listen to various denominations that even touch this issue, they're going to tell you that the whole church, the entire body of Christ, is going to be the bride of Christ. Um, do you know what they call a man who has only a body? They call him a bachelor. He hasn't gotten married yet. The body of Christ is important. But as it was with Adam of old, there's going to be a body of people, a group of people, a portion taken out of the body of Christ, out of the church, and made to be that bride. I heard somebody testify years ago. I'm so thankful to know that I'm in the bride. And I thought, no, you're not. You may be someday, but right now you're in the body. So the fact is that it's not the entire body of Christ that will be presented. 
And that's the whole issue there in Colossians. That, you know, you, you'll be presented if, if, if you meet certain conditions and they take that if and they say, well, you'll be lost. Well, what is the presentation? Christ presenting to himself a people prepared for a place. Again, I'll just continue with this doctrine before we move on. Um, the fact that it is not the entire body, the fact that not every person who has accepted Christ as Savior will see the completion of that offer to be in that company called the bride, I think it's made clear in 2 Corinthians 11 verses 1 through 3. Now some would find this teaching silly. Many people just reject the whole teaching about the bride on the face of it. So Paul said, oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. You think it's foolish? Okay, just put up with it and listen. And indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous. That is, I am zealous. That's a, that's a much better trend. I have a zeal for you with a godly zeal. For I have betrothed you, an espousal, an engagement, to one husband that I may present you as a chaste. There's that presentation. Presented if. Nothing about condemnation here. It's whether this presentation will take place. Present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, I have a concern for you. Yes, you're saved. Yes, you've been given this calling, but I am deeply concerned for you. Deeply concerned. I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. That word simplicity has to do with a singleness of thought, a singleness of focus, a singleness of commitment. You know, I find as I get older, my thinking sort of gets scattered. I begin, you know, it's like you go into the other room and you don't know what you're there for. And uh, you've all heard the joke, you know, people, old people think a lot more about the hereafter. You go in the living room and say, what am I here after, right? It's barely funny, but I find that my thinking sort of gets scattered. I get distracted easily. <laughs> Focus. I remember one time I came back from an overnight flight. Uh, well, it was, it was overnight to me because I was on England time. And I had asked Brother Doug Crook to speak in my absence, but we got there in time for church. And I thought I was just going to die. My eyes kept trying to roll back in the back of my head, and so I grabbed a chunk of my cheek. I bit down hard. And I listened, and I don't remember what the sermon was about, but I stayed awake and I stayed focused. I don't care what it takes, learn to focus. Don't be distracted from that singleness of purpose to be prepared for the presentation that is set before you. Now Paul's concern would have been unreasonable. It would have been foolish if the entire body of Christ was automatically going to be that company called the bride. If it wasn't possible to throw away that opportunity. So you see, there's a measure of reward involved. Here's your behavior. If your behavior meets this standard of faithfulness, of steadfastness, of commitment to the word of God, of allowing the Lord to cleanse you by his word, then you'll be a part of this presentation. Actions, 
reward. And so the truth, if indeed we continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, the highest expectation of the gospel that Paul preached is this presentation. This entering into a, a fullest, deepest possible relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. One more passage having to do with rewards that is used to argue that eternal life can be lost. Second Timothy chapter 2. Well, I'm, I may run out of time here. Verses 11 through 13. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Boy, that's one, isn't it? If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Well, did we, first of all, did we die with him? Uh, Romans 16, 1 through 6 says that we died with him. Galatians 2, 20 says that we died with him. And so we live with him. Eternal life has been given. We live in that resurrection life, that life that is beyond death. If we deny him, does that denial necessarily speak of an absolute rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ, first of all? Well, we have a practical example of that. Consider the example of Peter, who denied Jesus Three times after Jesus had been taken prisoner, had allowed himself to be taken prisoner in Gethsemane, the argument would be that if denying Christ loses your salvation, the moment Peter denied knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, he would have been a lost sinner on his way to hell. If that denial could cause that terrible loss. But what did Jesus say to Peter before Peter denied him? In Luke 22, verses 31 through 34, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you. Remember, Satan asked to get hold of Job, too. God knows what's going on, and he knows his people. And he asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith should not fail, that your faith should not be left off, that your faith should not cease to exist. I have asked for that in prayer ahead of time. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you do not know me, or that you know me. Deny three times that you know me. Now, was Jesus' prayer answered? Did Peter's faith just come to a sudden end? And that was the result. Uh, that denial was the result of that, that failure of his faith. Consider a couple of things. John 11, right part of verse 41, beginning of verse 42. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. Jesus never asked a thing of the Father that was not the Father's will. You always hear me. And then we read in 1 John 5, 14 and 15, Now this is the confidence that we have in him. 
have this kind of faith. By the way, learn the will of God so that you can pray in the will of God. Pretty important thing. This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, if we ask according to his will, we know that we have the petitions we have asked of him. And so those that say the denial of Peter spoken of that, or the denial spoken of in 1 Timothy 2, it, it results in the loss of salvation, will say, again, they'll say Peter was on his way to hell. The minute he denied Christ, he was on his way to hell. But, you know, I'm going to go with what Jesus said. I prayed for you that your faith won't fail, that it won't cease, that it won't be left behind. Uh, Jesus was heard, and Peter's faith did not fail. He was a terrified man. He, he became very cowardly because he was afraid for his life, and I, I don't have to agree with it. I understand it. His, his denial was a faithless act in that nobody could see that faith except the Lord. Down there in the middle of that terrified man, that man denying with an oath that he knew the Lord Jesus Christ, yet he knew and in his heart of hearts still believed, though he behaved foolishly. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah and that he'd put his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And since Peter's faith did not fail, the argument that Peter somehow lost eternal life by his denial just wouldn't work on any level, even if it were possible to lose eternal life. Because his faith never failed. So, denial... It's not an automatic rejection of Christ. I mean, comparing Scripture with Scripture, looking at what we can see in the Bible, putting it into context, what was Paul actually discussing? If you look back there in Timothy, he was actually discussing reigning with Christ. That He's talking rewards. If we endure the trials and the hardships that deepen our fellowship with him, the fellowship of his sufferings, those trials that deepen our understanding because we learn through those trials. We learn the faithfulness of God. If we deny him his right as our Lord to shape our manner of life, to shape our behavior, to turn us into those paths that are pleasing to him, those paths that will lead to that ultimate presentation. If we deny him his right to do that, to prepare us for the place of full reward, then he will deny us the right to enter upon that highest place. Just as simple as that. We're talking about rewards here. Again, there is... Nothing here, if you look at the context, if you analyze it, if you let the Spirit lead, there's nothing that would suggest that we could lose this eternal life. Because you see, Christ is our life. Christ cannot. He's given his word. I will know why he's cast you out. He cannot cast off those who are born again. Let me give you some affirmations. That's a big deal in some circles now. You have to have affirmations. John eleven twenty five, the beginning of it, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Who is the life? Jesus is the life. Galatians three twenty, 
I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. What's this life that's in me? It's Christ himself. Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Who is our life? What is our life? Jesus is our life. That's, why, that's one of the reasons why I have such confidence in this matter of eternal life. It's not me. It's not my doings. It is the person and the presence and the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ in me, the hope of glory. There's a rock-solid fact. If we are faithless, if our behavior ceases to manifest faith, there were some years in my life when if you had known me, you had, would have been very sure that I'd never been saved if you didn't know. Because my life was, there was no faith being exercised. I was still a child of God. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful. See, it doesn't, it's not all up to us, as some would make it. He remains faithful. He cannot, not just he will not, you know, God cannot lie. People say God can do anything. No, not really. He can't lie, he can't sin, and he cannot cast you out, and Jesus cannot deny himself. Once again, I will state that the saving faith still resided in the heart of poor, frightened, cowardly, denying Peter. But what cannot happen, whatever happens to us, is for Jesus to deny the truth, the reality, the substance of his life, his eternal life born in us the moment we accepted him as our Savior. He literally cannot deny that we are part of the body of Christ, that we are in him, and he abides in us. I'm going to stop there. I will say that next week we talk about that point. I'm glad he's the friend of sinners. <laughs> We'll start next time with 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 17. If you want to read that, we're going to transition to passages having to do with God's chastening of his children. Uh, they've been misapplied so that that chastening somehow becomes out of rejection about losing eternal life. So if you want to read ahead, 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 17, and that will be a bridge to some other passages. And that is what I have for the day. God bless you.